Is there anything that's a mystery to you still about what happened that you'd want to know the answer to? When they, when they knew scientifically that this was not working properly for people, and they and 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 we had to go through it anyways. Why are you torturing us? What? Why? So you want to know why they why they made the switch? Yes, and why did they have they not made it available to those who want it back, especially? when there is a crisis, an opiate crisis going on that's killing four people a day. Why not? What the fuck is wrong with you people? I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 9, Change Intolerance, Part 2. On today's show, I want to take you behind the scenes. I want to give you a sense of what it's been like to make Crackdown so far. The story starts around nine months ago, in January. Back then, we were gearing up to release Crackdown's first episode. We were doing things like writing the theme song you just heard and getting our editorial board together. I was really excited, but my expectations weren't all that high. I thought, nah, who's going to listen to this anyway? Ultimately, I was okay with that. I've played in local bands where sometimes only a dozen people show up to the gig. And I've learned that it's better to do something, even if it's something small, than not to do anything at all. But then something weird happened. People actually liked it. The best new podcast in Canada is about a war. The war on drugs and the war on drug users. The podcast is called Crackdown. It's called Crackdown. We hear a lot of talk about Canada's opioid crisis. How often do we hear it? what it sounds like? Up close, personal, like you just heard. What is it? What is he? What do they say? War journalists on there, right? Yeah, nothing about us without us is my favorite thing that they say on there. Right? Like they can't make laws about us without us, but it's about the drug war from people who abuse drugs. <laughs> All right, let's see if we can find a quiet place. Okay. Kitchen seems to work out. You tell me about your dog, and I'll just set the levels. Okay, all my dogs. So yeah, I'm showing you my little puppy pee patch on my pant. I mean, on my shirt. Well, you don't smell like puppy pee. Not yet, anyways. <laughs> give it, a, give it an hour or two. Or the <clears throat> um, this is my friend Laura so Shaver. She's been in the leadership of the BC Association of People on Methadone for years, and she's on the Crackdown editorial board. Just like me, Laura's pretty used to working her ass off and getting ignored or treated like shit. And the success of the podcast has been a bit of a departure from that story. And um, it's been really well received. Um, so I wanted to tell you how big a deal it is. Yeah, uh, I didn't really realize how how big of an audience is hit. Garth, everywhere I go, I keep hearing about, you know, oh, the podcast. I heard, we heard you on the podcast and... You know, that type of stuff. And I got a couple emails from people saying, like, what can we, like, are you serious? What can we do to help? Like, this is silly. (laughs) And this got us thinking. What if Crackdown was more than just a radio show? What if we could actually change things? And the first thing we thought of was methadone. So are we going to take the risk of uh, having coffee and gear in the same location? I mean, <laughs> uh, 
This was one of Crackdown's first editorial board meetings. Laura was there, and she was sitting right next to her best friend, Sharice Kiwaton. Short, Cree, and tough as hell, Sharice wasn't expected to be at this meeting. Last I heard, she was in the hospital. Sharice, can I just say, uh, we jumped into the agenda about how glad I am that you're here today. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah, Yeah, we're happy. You're much better than the last time I see you. Yeah, I know. Hi. Flora showed me the pictures. I said, you guys were taking pictures of me? I said, you guys are, said, you guys are harsh, man. I said, only you and Simone would do that. <laughs> I was in a big bubble, and then, and then they did one with me with a tube down my throat. <laughs> Sharice had spent over a decade on methadone. It offered her a break from the dope sickness and constant grinding to get the money to buy heroin. She was becoming one of the province's most outspoken drug user activists. But in 2014, things took a turn. One day, when Sharice went to her pharmacy, she was given a new kind of methadone something called methadose. This stuff didn't hold her as long. It didn't have legs. And pretty soon, she was waking up dope sick. Cherie started topping up with heroin, which then became contaminated with fentanyl. She knew it was dangerous, and she was trying to find anything that would work. Slow-release oral morphine, suboxone, but nothing stuck. After five years of waking up dope sick every day, the grind had really worn her down. So at this early crackdown meeting, you can hear us laughing and joking. But the truth was, we are worried. Yeah, so, um, yeah, just the whole, this whole lifestyle is just not what I signed up for. <laughs> I guess that's about all I have to do. For now. Go ahead. Laura? No, I pass. We can laugh about it now, but Therese was almost dead and it had nothing to, it was nobody's fault but her doctor. She sees a doctor once a week and they let her die in front of us. The story of the switch should have been front page news. It was monumental, but most people have never heard about it. What happened to Sharice happened to a lot of people. Back in 2014, BC had about 15,000 methadone patients. And most of us were on stuff called compounded methadone. It's basically just methadone that pharmacists stirred into a big batch of orange tang. That process of mixing up the powder into tang is called compounding. The government told us they didn't like compounded drugs. They'd rather us take a commercial pre-mixed product, like methadose. We spent years telling the story of what happened next, but it never broke through. Now, for the first time, we had our own radio show. And so we thought, let's try again. The first step was interviews. So I talked to Laura and my friend we called Ray. You know, I was on methadone constantly since, so to this year I've been like 23 years or something. I had no advance warning whatsoever. What did the pharmacist say? He just simply said, this is the new deal. This is, it's the same thing, trust us, trust us. The first thing that bothered me is the taste and the consistency, it was like, Exactly like drinking cough, cherry cough syrup. A sickly, thick cough syrup thing. There was something amiss. It was the middle of the night. I woke up feeling like uh, my legs would were moving and couldn't sleep, and I felt like twitches. I'm thinking, what the fuck? 
like, excuse my language, but how, what, what, whoa, what's going on? It's not even holding me the 24 hours that it promises. It's not even holding me 12, not even holding me 10. I am, I am dope sick. Like, I am, I'm dope sick. I, uh, this medication is not the same. There's something different. Like, uh, we just were never feeling good. And that's when we started re-chipping. I was trying so hard to keep my life together. And then somebody else decided for, my, for me what medication they were going to give me, and it was insufficient. We cut up my interviews with Laura and Ray. We wrote some music and we mixed it all together. I was pretty happy with how it sounded. Laura and Ray just laid it all out there, and I figured people were really going to connect with their stories. But then, just a few days before the episode dropped, I got a phone call. Sharice Kiwatin had died. That news just knocked the wind out of me. I called Laura and she had no words. She sounded like a wounded animal. I hurried off to meet her. Heavy wet gobs of snow were piling up fast, playing havoc with the buses. And I don't know if you remember, we were at the SkyTrain. It was snowing out. I so remember it. I so remember it. In the snow, just talking and... I remember your big warm green coat and I just remember I just remember having that hug that I needed so bad. We stood there crying for about an hour. We were a mess. I told Laura I don't know what to do about the podcast. On the one hand I couldn't think of anything more trivial than making a radio show at this time. But on the other hand telling the story was more important than ever and Laura said just put it out. And so I went back and finished the episode. We dedicated it to Charisse and closed it with a list of demands. We demanded that the government figure out what went wrong and that they apologize to us. And most importantly, we wanted them to give us the old methadone back. So I know that at the time we, we sort of, neither one of us could talk very much about Charisse, but now that it's been, you know, six months or seven months, mm -hmm. what difference do you think having the old methadone say say we won it say we got it a couple of years ago or something do you think that would have made a difference for her oh hell yeah Sharice would still be alive if the old methadone formulation would have been available Sharice would still be alive in actual fact if they wouldn't have in the last couple months messed around with her suboxone methadose morphine sh her body wouldn't have ha been so broken and I, 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 you know, I believe that. Like, I believe that you can get so dope sick for so long that it can kill you. Hell yes. Yes. She was never better. Methadone or opiate addiction is not just mental. It is fucking physical. It is physical. It's so physical. And that's the thing is that it is deadly. It's deadly. Dope sick means death. I don't care what anybody says. Dope sick means death. We released Crackdown's second episode change intolerance at the end of February, and pretty much immediately we started to hear from listeners. A doctor in Alberta told us he was seeing the same sort of thing. His patients had trouble with methadose after they switched. And then there was the people on methadone. Many had gone back to heroin after the switch. They never thought to question whether the medication itself had anything to do with it. And most surprisingly, there were the politicians. I heard BC cabinet ministers had listened. The former Minister of Health, Terry Lake, even got into the mix. He was one of the people who presided over the switch in the first place. I can remember, you know, I was running all, along the uh, Rideau Canal in Ottawa when I when I heard the podcast, and 
you know, I was struck by um, that that this was still an issue, and that that in fact, you know, it it hadn't really kind of resolved itself with time, um, and um, you know, it's one of those things where you know you can always look back in hindsight and say, well, we could have done that differently, or we should have, you know, taken another look at that. Lake didn't exactly take personal responsibility for the switch, but he did express some regrets, and he called Judy Darcy, BC's current Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, to recommend that she look into it. Laura and I weren't exactly sure what to make of all of this, but it definitely felt like progress, and we couldn't help but think, if Cherise was here, she'd be proud. I know she'd be so happy, just because, you know, because of the fact that you know, we're helping, we, just, we are helping people, Garth. We are, and there are changes coming. Her dream and her goal was to have the old methadone formulation back, and um, I won't stop until it is here, and I don't think Garth will either. You think if we, if we win this, if we get the old methadone back, should we, should we do something for Cherise? Should we do, have some kind of, like, moment where because you were just saying how important it was to her like maybe yes it's all about her it should be like this i don't know how i don't know what it should be like the fucking sharice drink or something yeah it should be (laughs) it should seriously oh no 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 this it's all about her it is all about her garth we've pushed really hard and you've worked your ass off but it's all i want it to be all about her There's part of the story that we didn't tell you in the last episode, because it was way too boring. For five years, I've been going to meetings with government and pharmacy bureaucrats. Recently, they've all been on teleconference. Welcome to the Government of British Columbia Conferencing Services. Now, I don't record these meetings, but sometimes they sound a little like this. The conference has not been initiated. You will be placed on hold until a moderator joins. At one point, there was a group of us from BCA Palm attending these meetings, including Cherise. But after a while, we decided it was a waste of our time for everyone to be here. So I volunteered to go it alone. Not that I really wanted to. These things were deeply technical, like glacial. I would get this dull headache, like right in the temples, and I never got it at any other time. But I'd still call into those meetings no matter what. It was like I was doing penance or something. Over five years of meetings, we pushed for one thing, bring the old methadone back. And for five years, that went nowhere. But after our episode dropped, it felt like maybe something was changing. Like maybe the bureaucrats on the call had been told to finally just make this problem go away. One of my ideas in particular seemed like it was finally getting some traction a press conference. I'd been arguing for a long time that the government had to get out there and make a really strong, loud statement about the problems that we've been experiencing with methadose so that all methadone patients and doctors would know if this isn't working, there is another option. Laura and I are on this stuff called Metadol-D. For us, it doesn't have a dose-holding problem, but hardly anyone else in the province is on it. This is one of the small concessions we won from government. Now it looked like the press conference was finally going to happen. The group even started to talk about when would be the best time to hold it. I argued the sooner the better, 
especially because of what was happening with Ray. You don't have a smoke on. Yeah, yeah. I know. Thanks. Yeah, my vaporizer broke, and when you know it, boom, within two weeks. So are you on methadose still right now? Still on methadose, still not having a good go. So Um, that means that you are, how's your day going then like that? Well, I I think I sent you a video of myself, and uh, I think it was pretty evident in the video. Right now, it's uh, just after 1.30. 30 p.m. last night I drank at 8 8 8 30 p.m. I've already had one violent sneezing attack and I'm not talking allergies I'm talking like <laughs> trying to catch a breath um, just don't sickness basically uh, and uh, I haven't missed a dose or anything the state like that I looked I was sneezing runny eyes and just basically a feeling of despair and uh, just wanting to give up. How do you get it? How do you go forward? How do you get anything done when you're like this? You know? But here I go. I'm gonna go now. Um. I'd been trying to help Ray get onto Metadol D ever since we did that interview for episode two. When I first told him about the stuff, he was polite, but I could tell he was skeptical. To get on a Metadol D, he'd have to convince his doctor that there was something wrong with methadose. Eventually, Ray got up the nerve, and he brought it up at an appointment with his doctor. He's a good guy, actually, uh, but he was more or less confused. He's like, oh no, that's, uh, you're not covered for that. So even after, even after Metadol had been kind of around a bit, and, and there's people from organizations I know that, officials, you know, that sent this form to all the doctors, sent the information to all the doctors, your doctor was still telling you, no, it's the same thing. It's This is in your head if you're having a problem? He was basically saying that the only... like, And, and I don't want to cast a real negative thing on him personally because sure. there seemed to be... Because he's a nice person. Doctors don't seem to be informed. Each uh, appointment that's coming up, I keep thinking, oh, this is going to be the time where... I can. I was actually even going to get you to come in. To I help will me. come with you. I will. <laughs> I, I've done this before. I yeah. absolutely will. And I'm. I'm actually very like um, diplomatic and polite, and I don't swear. And you know what well, I mean. Well, you like, know I how can, I am. I'm. I'm quite. You know, similar. As yeah, well, yeah. We so know. we could do it. Yeah. We could do a. You know, tag team. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. After this conversation, Ray went back to his clinic. This time, he showed his doctor a document I wrote along with the BC Center on Substance Use. It was printed on official letterhead, and it explained the problem with methadose. I guess it worked, because Ray's doctor finally gave him Metadol-D. This, this sounds so good when you do it over here. Okay, you ready? Yeah. This cruel country has driven me down Teased me and lied Teased me and I've only sad stories to tell to this town My dreams have withered and died Silver moon sailor and silver moon We had the overdose crisis map on to more than a decade of austerity politics in British Columbia. 
This is Ryan McNeil, Crackdown's science advisor. Underinvestments in housing, a sham of a treatment system. Um, it's not the least bit surprising that once it hit and fentanyl started to enter our drug supply, that the conditions were there for us to end up being one of the most impacted jurisdictions in the world. Methodos was part of it. Some of the preliminary data I've seen from colleagues is suggesting that, you know, if you look at February 2014 as this key date when the methadone change happened, you immediately saw a jump in all-cause mortality among people on methadone. So if you look at the data, you're saying, is as of February 2014, people dying on methadone, that goes up. Like that starts to go up. More of us are dying after that date. The preliminary data that I've seen suggests that if we look just at folks on all opioid agonist therapies, so methadone, suboxone, et cetera, it's the folks with methadone who were on methadone who were dying, thereby suggesting that it wasn't some other thing that was driving these deaths. It was the change to methadose. And, you know, now maybe we finally have the data available to us that will prompt them to listen and listen in a way that both validates and maybe has some accounting for what happened. But well, it, it's, a, it's a sad story to cycle back to and it's tell. It's so fucking infuriating that we have to enumerate the corpses before we have a chance of them listening. Welcome to the government of British Columbia conferencing services. Please enter your conference ID, followed by pound. The months dragged on, and I kept dialing into the teleconferences. But whatever fire we lit with episode two seems to have been snuffed out. At one point I was hearing, maybe the press conference will be next week. Book it in your calendar. But then that turned into maybe in a couple of months. And then I stopped hearing about it at all. And it didn't look like we were going to get the old methadone back either. There was this one guy in these calls, Bob Nakagawa. He's the registrar of the College of Pharmacists, the top guy there. And he's fought us the whole time. Eventually, the group settled on a feeble compromise. And this is the first time anyone has reported this. At the end of September, BC quietly started accepting applications for the old compound methadone. But on those applications, in big letters at the top, it says, exceptional, last resort only. To get it, you got to prove that methadose left you dope sick, and then that you tried metadol D, and that didn't work either. And then you can apply. I mean... People are already having a hard time convincing their doctors to switch to Metadol D, and this is going to be so much harder. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I just wanted to remind you of what we were demanding. Remember, at the end of episode two, yeah, stop making noise. Here. At the end of episode two, we made some demands. We said um, we demand access to the old methadone immediately. We said. Um, and so that this never happens again, we demand to have a say in policy decisions that affect our lives. Nothing about us without us. And the third demand was, we said, we demand an apology from the, from the Ministry of Health, from the College of Pharmacists of BC, and from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceutical. You think about those demands, have we got any of that yet? Uh, I think we got deadly squat. We've been stuck for so long, and the government's always talking like they're on the job, getting things done. But they're fucking gaslighting us, and at times, it gets to me. 
Like this one time, I was at a harm reduction conference. It was called Coming Together, and the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Judy Darcy, was in the middle of her keynote address. She was listing off the government's supposed accomplishments on the overdose crisis, and I just couldn't stomach it. I guess somebody was filming me on their phone. There's a question that's bothered me this whole time, and it's bothered Laura and a lot of other people too. Why? Why is the government so dug in on Methodos? Why have they resisted any kind of change? For a long time, we were just left to speculate about this, but now we have investigative journalists on the team. So we decided to get to the bottom of it. So I figured the best way to start to get at this question was going to be to actually look at any interaction between Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and the government that we could find. This is Crackdown's senior producer, Sam Fenn. I was particularly interested in interactions that took place in the year, two years, right before the switch. Um, and so I thought, okay, this is an interesting question. I set aside, you know, a couple weeks and thought I'll uh, write some Freedom of Information Act requests and send some emails and we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, it, it, it didn't take a couple weeks. Uh, I've now been working on this for months. One thing I do remember about all this, though, is when you, Sam, when you finally got your teeth into this story, not mm. finally like it took a long time, but it was a long time coming for me when to see somebody else independently arrive at the same sense of pissed offness that I had. I, uh, I definitely um, got pretty enthusiastic. So the way this all started was that I submitted a formal request to see some government emails. And that's supposed to take about 30 days, but they told me that they couldn't get it done in time. And so they asked for an extension. Um, and then after that extension had passed, they asked for another extension and then another one. And we were just like, finally, at one point, we were like, fuck that, right? Yeah. We we're like, let's just let's just go out and tell people they're saying no. They're going to not release the files. They're going to sit on this information. They're going to breach their own laws that say they have to supply this stuff. And we said, let's just tell everybody about it. I definitely had a day where I wondered, would they ever release it? Or was it just going to kind of just go away or something? And so for a while, it, it kind of felt like we had just hit a brick wall. But I remember one day in August, my phone goes off and I see um, it's an email. The government finally sent us the files. It was a PDF with nearly 300 pages. I remember, I think I, the first thing I did was I, 
I sent it to you. Yeah, for sure. You started at the front. I, I was on the bus. I started reading from the back. And at first looking through it, it was it was emails between people I had never heard of um, discussing things that they, like conversations that seemed like they had already been ongoing. And so it was really confusing at first. And, and there were holes, right? A lot of it was redacted, like censored. So oh, nearly half. Right. Yeah. So we, we were having trouble piecing together. Like what is it? There wasn't immediately a smoking gun. Aha. We, were, we had to figure out the pattern. Right. We started to read through the file separately. I was marking it up with highlighters and making notes in the margins. It was dark by the time we talked on the phone. I walked really far away from my apartment uh, while pacing around while I was talking to you. So far away that it started to rain and I didn't have a jacket and I just had to be like, well, fuck it, you know, and like walk home in the rain while we talked. I think what struck me was Bob. Definitely. Bob Nakagawa was the same guy who'd been fighting me on conference calls all those years. I had no idea that he was involved in the switch itself. His name showed up in an email sent by a Malincrot sales rep named Christoph Gofaz. It was addressed to people at the Ministry of Health and the College of Pharmacists. Christoph is sending this email before the switch happens. Um, and in it, he seems a little mad. It's snippy. It's, it's snippy. It's crisp. Yeah. And basically what he's telling both the Ministry of Health and the College of Pharmacists is that we have a timeline to get the switch done and things seem like they're falling behind. And so he reminds everybody that there was um, an understanding in place. That's the word Christoph uses, understanding. And according to Christoph, the understanding was formed back in December 2011 when Malincrot met with Bob Nakagawa. Apparently, Nakagawa was in senior management with the Ministry of Health back then. I didn't know that. Uh, Malincrot starts to make investments. They get Methodos licensed in Canada. They figure out how to import it across the border, and they set up a distribution network. And Christoph says this was all done based on, a, quote, exclusive exchange with Pharmacare. I remember the, the first time I read that, I, I sort of just missed it. But then I, when I reread it, I, I underlined the words exclusive exchange. I sure remember seeing that, too. I was like, thought, what does that mean? We decided to give Christoph Gofaz a call. In the emails, it was pretty clear that Gofaz was overseeing the switch on behalf of Malincrot. And so we figured if anyone knows what exclusive exchange means, it would be him. Good afternoon. Hi, is Christoph there? Yes, it's me. Christoph, did you used to work for Malincrot Pharmaceuticals? Uh, that's correct, yes. So Christoph actually turned out to be surprisingly talkative. He doesn't work at Malincrot anymore. Well, that probably helps. Yeah, I, I, I bet. And Christoph explained what exclusive exchange meant. He said that Bob Nakagawa and the Ministry of Health back in 2011, they wanted to move away from the compound methadone to something pre-concentrated. Metadol-D was around back then. The ministry could have switched to that instead. But Christoph says they thought it was too expensive. And so Christoph says that the way he understood it was this. BC, the Ministry of Health, was actually very eager to have Malincrot bring Methodos to Canada because it would produce an overall cost savings as compared to the old compound methadone. We never heard about that part. I sat in years of meetings with government and I discussed Methodos in painful, granular detail and no one ever talked about the cost savings. But it was going to cost Malincrot 
millions of dollars to bring Methodos to Canada. And so what exclusive exchange means, according to Kristoff, is that the government formed an understanding with the company that they would become the new standard of care, or in other words, that they would get access to nearly all of BC's then approximately 15,000 methadone maintenance patients. Us. Exclusive exchange, this understanding, we'll probably never know how much it affected our lives. If there wasn't an understanding, maybe we wouldn't have had such a hard time making progress. Or maybe it doesn't matter. People in power don't believe dope fiends. The most disturbing thing to me is how banal it all is. The more we find out about this, the more it seems to be just business as usual. Just austerity capitalism operating normally, and we don't count for all that much. So there was one last email um, from July 2014, so the summer right after the switch. A government employee sends Kristoff a message. Hi, Kristoff, she says. Hope your summer's going well. Um, We have some reports of a wearing off effect on methadose and, uh, quote, this allegedly leading to patients going back to heroin. Um, And then she asks for a whole range of data to be sent over. Pharmacokinetic data, case reports. Information about methadose patients going back to heroin. But for, for whatever reason, this was the end of the file. This was the so, last. So this is the one moment, the one person in government that actually said, okay, let's, let's see. Let's just take, take their word for a minute. They're getting dope sick. Let's, let's go see. And then what happens right after that is nothing, right? Like there's a big silence on the record. We see no more files. We see five no years. more emails. Yeah, five years of silence. So... If it was responded to, we don't see any of that. We asked the Ministry of Health to produce these files. They did not respond in time for the broadcast. Neither did Bob Nakagawa. Malincrot Pharmaceuticals confirms that they did produce a report for the Ministry of Health, and they sent it to us. The document does not compare the dose-holding issue between methadose and the old compound methadone. Nevertheless, it concludes, quote, the benefit-risk evaluation of the product remains unchanged. We don't know if the Ministry of Health simply took Malincrot at their word. We asked Malincrot whether they struck a deal with the Ministry of Health back in 2011. A spokesperson responded, quote, As a matter of policy, our relationship with the Ministry of Health is proprietary. He added, quote, I do not want to comment about information from and discussions with former employees. Welcome to the Government of British Columbia Conferencing Services. We've been gaslighted, stonewalled, and slow-walked. We're going to keep searching until we get to the bottom of this. And we're going to keep fighting until everybody gets the methadone that works for them. At the tone, please state your name, followed by the number sign. Garth. Thank you. You will be placed on hold. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Special shout out this month to Zoe Dodd for showing us all how to most effectively interrupt a minister while they're giving a speech. 
If you want more information on how to get on compound methadone and metadol DNBC, check out our website. Crackdown's editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and Sharice Kiwatton. R.I.P. Sharice. Crackdown is produced by Sam Fenn, Lisa Hale, and Alexander Kim. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter, at Garth Mullins. Original score written and performed by Sam Fenn, Jay Heen, Kai Paulson, James Ash, and me. Our theme song was written by me and Sam with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. We get funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you like what we do, support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Thank you to all of our supporters. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps. We're also on CITR and Co-op Radio in Vancouver and CFUR in Prince George. We're happy to be on your radio station too. Follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is crackdownpod.com. Our next episode drops at the end of November. Be safe. Keep six. Hey, buddy. Want to say hi to the Crackdown listeners? Sorry, that's a no. Okay, I got you.